uh, social media campaigning by mostly, not exclusively, but mostly the Internet Research Agency in St. Petersburg, the Troll Farm, I think has been vastly, vastly blown out of proportion here in the United States. This was nowhere nearly as important and effective as really most Americans think today. So the ad that you um, that you just mentioned, the Jesus versus Satan arm wrestling ad, it gathered 71 impressions um, and received 14 clicks only for one day. It was up only for one day. That is nothing. Oh my God, that's, uh, that 14 clicks is nothing. It's Episode 312 of the Cyber Law Podcast brought to you by Steptoe and Johnson. Thanks for joining us. We're lawyers talking about technology, security, privacy, and government. And the views we express here do not reflect those of our institutions, our clients, our family members who are uh, forced to listen to us now that we're on lockdown, uh, uh, or the pets uh, who would be glad to contribute, uh, but who have been uh, uh, put in a separate room. Uh, Today, we're going to interview Thomas Ridd, who's a professor of strategic studies at Johns Hopkins, and he's got a new book out called Active Measures, The Secret History of Disinformation and Political Warfare, and it is a great story about uh, mainly uh, how the Russians have fallen in love with disinformation. Happened 100 years ago, uh, and they're still in love. Um, uh, So Thomas, uh, we're glad to have you, and we'll be coming back to you after the news roundup. Uh, where we're going to be joined by David Chris, co-founder of Culper Partners, formerly in charge of the National Security Division at the Justice Department, Matthew Hyman, uh, senior fellow at the National Security Institute, formerly with the Justice Department, Nick Weaver, a senior researcher and lecturer in computer science at UC Berkeley, and I am your host, Stuart Baker, chief provocateur for today's program. Uh, uh, so why don't we jump in? Uh, uh, listen, this is actually something where uh, uh, the uh, cyber hippies and I I uh, tend to agree. Supreme Court is taking a big Computer Fraud and Abuse Act case uh, uh, on the question of just how far um, the Computer Fraud and Abuse Act arm that prohibits uh, actions in excess of authorization on on networks, uh, how much of that can be turned into a uh, uh, federal crime? Uh, uh, David, uh, uh, what's at stake here? Uh, a huge amount is at stake here because the way the Computer Fraud uh, Abuse Act is written, it's a crime, a federal crime, to intentionally access a computer without authorization or to exceed authorize access to get information or alter information. The question really is what happens when you have access for certain purposes on certain terms and conditions, but not access to the computer for others? This case involves a corrupt police officer who ran a search on someone whom his friends in crime thought might be an undercover cop. Um, And so it's not terribly sympathetic facts. But as Oren Kerr has blogged about and as a number of people have written about, you know, if you allow the host of a service to set the terms of service and make any violation of those terms of service a federal felony, you are sweeping a very, very broad net. Um, And Oren himself has testified under oath that uh, he's routinely violating terms of service for Facebook and other services. And so if uh, the government's broad interpretation were to hold here, We'll be, I guess, visiting him in the pokey. 
Um, come so come and a, get it's me, a Kappa. Big case. <laughs> right. So it's a big case. There's a circuit split, um, and and the Supreme Court presumably will now try to decide exactly, you know, what conditions can be put on access. Um, it's it's as if you know there were like a, a sign at the front of like Disney World, you know, and with like 900 terms and conditions that you have to click through in order to enter the premises, and if you don't. You're guilty of a felony if you if you violate any one of them. You know you're guilty of a felony. So it, it's got very very broad implications. So the, the it seems to me, given that there is a split in the circuits, but most of the circuits have come down saying they don't think this should be a crime. Uh, at least violating terms of service should not be a crime. And there are a lot of good reasons for doing that. You shouldn't have private people defining what a felony is. None of us read the damn terms of service anyway, and some <laughs> right. of them are silly. Uh, there's, there's a lot of reasons why that uh, is not a sensible position, uh, putting aside the rule of lenity. Um, uh, but uh, that doesn't resolve the question of, well, when do you violate the in excess of authority uh, provision? Because there clearly are things where, you know, uh, everybody invites people to their web site and says, yes, read the, uh, you know, come to my art, uh, to my website and download the articles that I've posted there. You don't want them saying, oh, and by the way, I'm going to uh, use my access to, to go back to the rest of your uh, uh, computer and read all of that stuff too. Uh, that's clearly the the same thing as just hacking into my computer. Um, so uh, where have the courts ended up in trying to say what an actual violation of authority is? So it's a it's a great question because the the sort of alpha and omega are just what you said. One is any condition through any term of service or other limitation on access would count. And the other is if you give somebody access on any terms, uh, no matter how limited, then they have complete freedom to roam and do whatever they want, including, you know, potentially altering information uh, on your website. And and what you see in the circuits and in the commentary is a real struggle to define or differentiate between limitations that should count as uh, as felony predicates here and those that shouldn't. What the court might do in this case is um, sort of take a narrow cut at it, um, in part because the issue seems to be very, very difficult, um, and or they might encourage Congress to be more precise. This is a law enforcement computer database um, in a state police uh, office that's linked to NCIC. So it's, you know, it's not for the general public. It's on very restricted access, and that access comes with pretty explicit terms and conditions that you're not supposed to use it, you know, for... Um, personal or unauthorized reasons, whether those be corrupt or whether it be lovent or whatever else. Uh, and so, you know, you can imagine the court proceeding here incrementally saying, well, for an official government computer system with highly sensitive information on which access is granted on an extremely limited basis, then the, you know, the core terms and conditions about fundamental purpose for authorization count, even if every little jot and tittle of every limitation in any generic common carrier uh, type of situation don't count. Um, but that's all speculation. It's it's difficult and the line drawing has been difficult and so far unsatisfactory. One thing that I think helps on the line drawing is that 
exceeds authorized access is separate from unauthorized access. So if I set up a web page and I have some additional control you have to bypass to take over my computer and rifle through it, then the argument is, is that's unauthorized access, not exceeding authorized yeah. access. Yeah, that might work. Right. So my guess is the court will feel the court is not going to want to decide three of these cases in three different terms. So I, I I'm not sure they're going to uh, completely say, well, here's a here's a ticket good for this ride only. Uh, uh, they're going to want to shape the way the lower courts apply the new rule. I, I, I'm taking it as given the, the United States government is going to lose this case. Uh, I, I just do not. Uh, it looks to me as though the four uh, liberals will uh, not be particularly sympathetic. And I'm guessing that half the conservatives will be unsympathetic. So I, I think they lose. And then the question is, how do they lose? And I'm guessing that whoever writes this will feel some obligation to explain what the limits of the loss are. All right. Uh, so, uh, speaking of limits on losses, uh, the um, the House, if if you remember uh, our, our FISA travails uh, uh, a month ago, more than a month ago, uh, uh, FISA uh, several FISA authorities were about to expire. Uh, the um, Senate agreed on a, well, the House said, uh, here's a package of things that will renew them. The Senate, uh, thanks uh, uh, largely to Senator Rand Paul, said, we really want to debate more possible changes, uh, and we're not going to buy this pig in a poke. So we're just going to send it back to the House and say, how about we kick this can down the road uh, to some, oh, completely uh, 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 non-politicized environment like, I don't know, October of uh, uh, an election year. Um, And they passed that to the House and the House just went home. It never bothered to uh, uh, rule on that, to, to vote on that. And so we lost the authorities. Uh, we've now lost them for uh, five weeks, I'd say. And we're starting to see stories that suggest that uh, uh, it's causing real harm to our uh, national security capabilities. Matthew, what's, what's, what are the problems with uh, having lost these authorities? Well, the the problem is, as as was reported last week uh, in an interview with John Demers, who's the Assistant Attorney General for the National Security Division at Justice, he pointed out that there are five to ten cases in which, in the normal course, they would have uh, sought business records from from different companies, and they were unable to do so because the business records provision, which is one of the three provisions that's expired, is no longer available. Uh, to the FBI. Uh, the other two provisions relate to uh, roving wiretaps, which have to do with, in the kind of the typical case, if if someone's using one phone number and they jump to another phone number and they're a target of surveillance, the government is allowed to continue surveilling them as they switch phone numbers. And then the third category of uh, authority that the government had, which expired, relates to lone wolf. So this is the person that's sitting alone, somewhere and is inspired to do something bad, but they're not directly connected to, uh, you know, a foreign terrorist organization or, you know, a foreign government. Um, So those are the three authorities that are gone. And and we're, 
we're now hearing senior government officials saying it's compromising investigations, and, and that should come as no surprise to anyone. So what's what's really troubling about this is that all of those business records cases would have been something that the government, they could have asked for those business records if they had a criminal case, because all that the USA Patriot did was to say, you know, those standards that apply to criminal cases, let's apply them to business records uh, uh, requests by the government in uh, national security cases. So what the House has done, well, what, what Congress has done by putting a, uh, a sunset on this is put this utterly uncontroversial authority on life support on a regular basis uh, and at the whims of things like, uh, you know, coronavirus shutdowns. Uh, uh, no one thought we would end up losing uh, the ability to adopt legislation, but we pretty much have. Uh, and the consequences are pretty serious. Well, it's very discouraging. Uh, and uh, uh, another discouraging thing that I, I need to talk about briefly, at least, is uh, um, the Inspector General uh, Horowitz uh, had a, uh, everybody remembers his report, which was pretty scathing about errors in the uh, um, uh, Carter Page FISA uh, applications. Uh, uh, he had backed up his rather general statements with details in footnotes, the footnotes had been pretty heavily redacted uh, and um, uh, uh, Senator Grassley and others who read the classified version said, really, these are facts that need to get out uh, and we think you can do a better job of um, uh, redacting this rather than just blacking out most of the footnote. Uh, uh, the Justice Department has now released a much less redacted set of four footnotes. Uh, and there's a lot of uh, a, a kind of conservative commentary about it. Uh, and and the, the, you know, my, my quick assessment, uh, these are very bad facts. Uh, there, there's indications that the Russians were aware that the, uh, the dossier was being assembled, that at least one member of the alleged network that uh, was used to assemble the dossier was a, uh, uh, a Russian intelligence agent, and that the most scandalous and salacious details, the, the stuff about the, you know, jumping around on the, on the bed Obama had slept in with prostitutes and peeing on them and things like, all of that uh, came from somebody who uh, was believed to be disseminating disinformation. Um, that came to the Justice Department kind of indirectly and, uh, well, or at least it came in in a place that was not directly tied up to the FISA uh, request. And it came in January and February and maybe a little later. Uh, too late to have been something that should have been included in the original FISA application. But uh, clearly uh, the kind of thing that you would have thought somebody would have acted on saying, gee, maybe we've got a problem. Uh, I don't think that the FISA applications relied either on the Bed jumping, or the uh, uh, I think there's a, another there's a trip that uh, the president's uh, lawyer was supposed to have taken that no one really thought he had taken. But to have this information comes in and not to act on it is it's just so discouraging, and it makes you wonder 
whether even after they had filed and when it had become a giant political issue, whether this was a justified uh, action, it doesn't look as though the Justice Department went back and said, you know, this is really a hard question. We'd better make sure that we have taken account of every possible bit of information that when we go in to renew these FISA applications. They just didn't do it. So I don't see a conspiracy here, but it, it, it's just another dispiriting um, indication of cluelessness and sloth on the part of the FBI. You know, if you're inclined to find a conspiracy, you could find a conspiracy. But I think it's more likely they just... They they were either so blinded by anger at the president for firing uh, uh, Comey and putting the Justice Department in awkward positions uh, that they didn't go looking or didn't want to look like they were looking for uh, uh, exculpatory information, uh, uh, or they just they're just uh, frozen the stick. But it was sad. All right. Well, that's uh, uh, that's my quick assessment uh, uh, of the footnotes. Um, a new IG report. Uh, um, the DOD IG has been looking at the cloud contract being awarded to uh, currently Microsoft and being challenged by Amazon uh, uh, and whether the president interfered with the uh, award. Um, uh, and uh, David, uh, I, I'd say this is a... Uh, technical win for uh, Amazon and a practical loss. Yeah, that's not a bad assessment. And it's also tied up, of course, with the current lawsuit uh, in which it looks like the Defense Department is going to be given another chance to sort of uh, reaward the contract uh, after taking account of, of whatever new information has been brought forward. Uh, this, uh, for people who don't know, this is a a $10 billion cloud computing procurement contract for the Defense Department that, as you say, was awarded to Microsoft. It's so big, it's so valuable that inevitably, you know, there's going to there's going to be disputes and so forth about it. This extremely long IG report from DOD, which I confess I did not read all of, mostly focusing on the summary and a few other parts, you know, reviews three broad sets of claims. First, there's IBM and Oracle that claim that the RFP, the, the request for proposal at the outset, was written to disfavor them. Uh, and they had some members of Congress backing them up on that. Uh, there were claims that DOD officials had ties like prospective employment with Amazon. And then this third one, which maybe got a little more attention, is the White House pressure that's alleged because Trump hates Jeff Bezos. Uh, and that that's why the thing was awarded to Microsoft. And actually, as I comment on this, I guess it's a good time to remind everyone of your disclaimer that um, Culper Partners, my consulting firm, might work for all summer, none of the relevant bidders, although we've never done any work related to this Jedi project uh, or the IG review. But basically, the IG didn't find any major, major problems. Uh, there was an improper disclosure to Microsoft of information of Microsoft information to Amazon, but they never got anywhere near the core of the White House bias claims because of uh, presidential communications privilege that were asserted. And they basically just gave up. The IG's report just says, look, it, it would take forever to sort this out. We would only be getting these very limited written answers that would have been massaged by the lawyers at the White House. So we just said, forget it. We're not going to go down that road. But the lower ranking DOD officials who did the actual decision making here 
said they were aware of the president's preference, but it didn't influence them. Uh, DODIG says it sort of creates the appearance of, of bias when the president is saying, you know, don't give this to Amazon, but they didn't find any causation. They didn't look everywhere that you would have wanted to look. The privilege was asserted and limited them. And they just sort of said, you know, the perfect is the enemy of the good. Let's do our 300 page report and move on. Yeah. And, and that my guess is that uh, what's going to happen now is the, um, the Pentagon has said, we, we think there are some fair points in what Amazon is complaining about, and we think we can fix those pretty fast. So we're going to go back and fix those problems do a do rather over. than have a long process. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and the court has, has said, yeah, go why ahead. Don't you don't do that. Right. Uh, and that, that means that it, um, Amazon is going to be left complaining about mean tweets. Uh, and uh, uh, I'm guessing that if all of the uh, folks who actually did the award said, yeah, we were aware of it, but uh, um, we didn't pay any attention to it. I, uh, that's uh, That sounds like a winning argument. That'll be an awkward one, but I think it's a winning argument. And so uh, good chance that this uh, 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 challenge uh, fails. That's just a, just a guess. All right, Matthew, uh, uh, this week in coronavirus hacking, uh, uh, it, it is a great time to be hacking people. Uh, and it looks as though uh, the Chinese and the Syrians are, are on it. Yeah, uh, the, the Chinese are being the Chinese and the Syrians are being the Syrians, and they're doing it in two different ways. Um, so Electric Panda, which is a Chinese-affiliated hacking group, um, is apparently targeting... Uh, secured contractors that work with the Department, U.S. Department of Defense and the Defense Counterintelligence and Security Agency sent out a warning. And typically their warnings are vanilla about, hey, you know, watch out for this kind of hacking activity or, hey, this category of contractors is at risk. Be mindful. Uh, what made this warning a little different was the fact that they called out Electric Panda by name. Um, and in the notice, it says, since February 1, the group has been targeting contractors that specialize in the following, cybersecurity, aerospace, naval, healthcare, power generation, IT systems, telecom, risk analysis, space systems. So pretty much across the board, but it's particularly interesting that, and not surprising that Electric Panda is focused on uh, health systems and health networks given the COVID crisis. Yeah, I thought it was interesting that they they said uh, we've got the incoming and the outgoing uh, communications from their uh, their C three machines, so our yeah. C two machines. Uh, so they um, uh, that means that this was the U S government advertising that they had um, uh, found some uh, command and control uh, machines and compromised them, uh, which is you know uh, it's sort of counting coup on the on the enemy. Yeah. Exactly. And then if we if we look at what the Syrians are doing, the Syrians are, are, are more focused. I think they're more inwardly focused in terms of taking advantage of COVID-19 in that they are pushing malware uh, that is and they're pushing it towards populations that are Arabic speakers or Syrians or anyone that might be critical to Syrian government. The malware looks like it is a, you know, a, a health data tracker or a COVID-19 tracker. It actually, you know, you load it onto your onto your phone and it turns out to be, you know, a funnel for all information you're putting through your phone, whether you're on phone calls or text messaging, and that filters all back to the government. So it's just a way for the government to sneakily surveil you and your, your devices. 
Well, I, uh, since we're all on Zoom these days, uh, uh, the the other question is Zoom security. Uh, uh, David, I see this. Hackers are selling a zero day for a Zoom uh, for $500,000. Uh, is, it, is it really worth that? <laughs> Depends how much you want to Zoom bomb your kid's college class. Um, you know, I, the uh, we were talking before about how the, the security is going to get improved if it hasn't already improved on Zoom. I, I sort of think this story is interesting as part of a larger question, which is, you know, whether and to what extent existing mechanisms for bug bounties and identifying and then patching these things are adequate. Um, a lot of companies for many years now have been running more or less passive systems in which they have websites and you can apply and you make a submission. And if the submission is valid under the terms and conditions, you can get a reward. They sometimes do crowdsource like hack the Pentagon efforts and stuff. But this raises the question to me, at least, as to whether there may be more of these things now coming back into fashion and, and becoming more available on the black or gray markets and and whether more active uh, you know, hunting and killing measures are going to be needed. But the problem is those uh, are very fraught for legitimate big companies to engage in. So it, it seems to me maybe, maybe the the front edge of some very hard policy questions for, for companies about whether and how to get into this space to ferret these things out and patch them. Yeah, I'm pretty sure that you couldn't get $500,000 worth of bounties for, for a zero day like this. Uh, um, and so uh, the market is brutal. Who's to say who's to say they're getting $500,000 for it on the black market? Uh, uh, so uh, we'll we'll see. Um, right. Uh, I hope the FBI is bidding and, and uh, <laughs> exactly. says, I'll oh, just send us a copy of your driver's license and we'll send you a check. Right. Um, uh, all right. Um <laughs> So uh, we we have been talking. Uh, uh, I'm sure uh, some listeners feel endlessly about uh, uh, health uh, or uh, infection tracing apps. Uh, that saga continues. Uh, uh, Nick, it looks as though Apple and Google are having some kind of tiff with the National Health Service of the UK about exactly how this is going to get done. Um, uh, and if I'm reading this right, uh, uh, they are making some concessions. They're no longer uh, kind of stuck on the idea that all of this needs to stay uh, away from a central authority. Uh, but they've, they're not completely surrendering their basic design, if I understand it. Well, and that's because the basic design is sound, that in the question of centralization for versus distrib distribution, for the purposes of contact uh, tracing for health purposes, there is no difference. Distributed centralization does the same thing, but centralization has huge privacy impacts going forward. So with a distributed approach, among other things, you could just keep it on after this epidemic passes and have it already in place for the start of the next one. Um, well, you might have to wait 100 in, years. <laughs> uh, I, 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 I kind of disagree with MERS, you on this, Nick. SARS, et cetera, um, show that we've had near misses about every five to 10 years. I think it, I think you're right that uh, uh, unfortunately this is going to be the beta test. 
Uh, and I think part of the beta problems are generated by Google and Apple's kind of naive commitment to crypto libertarian uh, thinking. Uh, um, uh, the idea that, uh, oh, this... We, we can do this in distributed or uh, centralized. It doesn't matter. It'll all be fine. I, it really misses the way people from public health authorities have been doing this, uh, this tracing. What they want to do is they want to find out when somebody has tested positive, they want their list of contacts and they want to call them and say, you've been exposed. Here's what it means let me answer your questions. Let me suggest what you ought to do. A whole bunch of things that they like to do uh, in an in-person discussion, not just uh, have Google say, oh yeah, we sent a notice. What do you want? Uh, it, it, sending the notice is, not, is, is only part of what the public health authority does. And so they have to get uh, an ability to communicate with people easily and quickly uh, when they're notifying them that they've been exposed. And and, the and you Google, can do Apple that stuff, in a distributed app. That's yes, the thing. Yes, if you, if, if you stand on your head and you questions. whistle three times. <laughs> no, it's all the time. Apps will do things on a user's behalf automatically. What you are arguing for and what we are in vocal agreement on is that the apps must not only report to the user, but also forward that information to the health department. And you can do that in a distributed fashion. That is orthogonal to where the data is stored. The only thing that distributing the data doesn't allow the health department to do is to hop contact chasing when the app notifies the health department as well as the user. So I, 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 skeptical because I see all, I'm, I want to see how this works in practice, but it looks to me as though there's going to have to be a, a, a consent from the user for the notification to go out. Then the notification goes out, but it isn't clear that the phone number of the people who are being notified goes to the uh, 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 the public health service so they can make calls. Uh, and so uh, it, it may be that the person who gets it has to go through some, you know, Google, Apple, privacy nut designed uh, set of uh, uh, options saying, do you really want to hear from those evil Nazis at the public health authority? I, you know, I, I, I just, uh, it's, it's set up to fail uh, and it's set up as though they never thought they were going to have central administration. Uh, now they're realizing they have to have central administration and they're making kind of grudging uh, changes to say, well, what do we have? What's the minimum we have to do to to, to make these guys go away? I, it's just, I, it's it's very weird to have two private companies, which God bless them, have done some volunteer work, but who could have been ordered to do that volunteer work, uh, and who have uh, insisted on a design that uh, uh, nobody in the public health service would have started with. I disagree because nobody in the public health service has the cryptographic and computer engineering background to distinguish between centralized and distributed. These days, now that the two communities are getting together, the public health service is making sure that the computer companies and the computer communities understand that you have to do notification to the health department automatically as part of the app. Uh, 
But the public health people are coming to the observation that you can do all this in distributed fashion, and doing it in distributed fashion has a huge advantage in terms of adoption. Do you really want all your data going to a FBI accessible database of who you've been in contact with? No. I am skeptical that that will actually change uh, 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 take up. Uh, uh, what will matter is whether a Drudge uh, uh, starts shouting about it or not. Uh, uh, but um, it's. Um, uh, I hope it's been educational for Google and Apple, and I hope the, the United Kingdom uh, National Health Service uh, plays their trump card and basically says, uh, uh, we disagree on this, and so you lose. You will make it our way. And if you want a, an order, we'll order it. Uh, and if you want us to uh, impose uh, uh, billion-dollar fines for the cost of uh, doing it wrong, we can do that too. Uh, but we'll see. All right. Uh, I, so last question, Nick, I'll ask you this one too. Uh, the uh, Facebook, and maybe others are doing this as well, has announced that it is actually um, refusing to allow people to post notices of demonstrations. Uh, uh, these are anti-lockdown demonstrations where people are going out and saying, uh, we think the lockdown's crazy and we want it to end now. Uh, and, and they're saying, if your states or local authorities say that demonstrations are a violation of the lockdown, we are not going to allow you to post anything about them on Facebook. Uh, I, I'm sort of astonished about that because uh, uh, I uh, I cannot imagine, frankly, that they would have done that if the first demonstration had been Black Lives Matter, as it easily could have been in Detroit. Uh, uh, I don't think they did that during uh, uh, Arab Spring when it was for sure a violation of local law to have a bunch of uh, uh, demonstrations on the topics that were being demonstrated on. And I don't think they would have done that uh, with uh, uh, lunch counter sit-ins in the South, which were also a violation. I, the idea that they get to say, yeah, demonstrations, which clearly a First Amendment activity or something that we're going to tell you, uh, you're not even going to find out about it because we're not going to allow it because we're with the, uh, the guys who wrote the law, strikes me as yet another step too far uh, in handing over our uh, uh, speech rights to uh, social media. At the same time, though, they're in an impossible bind. They've got basically a group of death cults drinking and handing out uh, cyanide-laced haterade to everybody in Jonestown <laughs> with the amplification factor that outbreaks don't just affect those people. They affect the whole community. So Facebook basically said, okay, we have these death cults. We don't know what to do about them. If the state wants to object, we will then control the communication. But 
force the state to be the one responsible for it. Well, and the, so, the, the state the state can be responsible. They they can they can get the names of everybody who called for these meetings, everybody who said they were going to these meetings. They can go to them and say, "You have violated these orders, and we're going to prosecute you." And you could have the usual fight in which people say, "I engaged in civil disobedience, and I'm willing to take the consequences." Uh, I I've already had the virus, so I'm not worried, or I'm 20 years old, and I don't think it's going to hurt me. All of the things that we hear from people, like, uh, I, I'm not living so with So you granny, would rather, so let me get this straight. You would rather have Facebook turn over in bulk subscriber data to the state so the states can prosecute. In okay. response to a subpoena? Yeah, sure. Because I don't think the states are going to do that. I don't think they have the cojones to do that. Uh, uh, but they're quite happy to have people just quietly deep six, uh, the, uh, uh, the announcement of the demonstration, uh, uh and I, you'd be as outraged as uh, I am on the verge of being if instead of right-wing, uh, uh, demonstrators, this was shutting down, uh, uh, inner city demonstrations about the, uh, uh, disparate impact of the coronavirus, uh, on their community. But the interesting thing is, is for some strange reason, the death cult only seems to be affecting the right wing this go around. Well, it's you should be in favor of that. <laughs> okay, but without commenting on the merits, death cult handing out cyanide-laced haterade is definitely the thing that's going to stick with me at the end of all this. So thank you for that, Nick. <laughs> all right. Well, okay. So I, 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 we're not going to resolve this. Uh, so I'm going to call it an, a, a, a draw and uh, move on uh, uh, to our interview with Thomas Ridd. Uh, uh, Thomas, uh, as I said at the start of the show, is a professor of strategic studies at Johns Hopkins. He's been on the program before talking about his earlier publication. Uh, I like this one a lot better. Uh, and uh, because it is a deep look. I mean, the last one kind of said, well, there's not going to be a cyber war. And I thought that was wrong then and it's wrong now. And uh, uh, and, and Thomas has a special definition of cyber war, but we won't get into that. Uh, uh, instead, I want to celebrate this book because it's a fascinating look at uh, disinformation of coming from the Russians we thought, you know, we kind of discovered Russian disinformation in 2016. Uh, uh, it had a hundred-year history, uh, uh, Thomas, and I, maybe uh, you could introduce us to Felix Dzerzhinsky and uh, the very first uh, 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 communist use of, uh, or Russian communist use of disinformation. Uh, yeah, thank you for having me on, uh, Stuart. I appreciate it. Um, so yeah, the the uh, history of Soviet, uh, I'd like to uh, say, um, and more widely, uh, Eastern Bloc disinformation is indeed uh, breathtakingly uh, dense with case studies. So it was difficult to find a starting point. I could have gone back even further, but the biggest and also one of the best researched uh, cases is this Operation Trust. Um, this was Felix Dzerzhinsky, the founder of the Cheka, ultimately the uh, KGB, what later became the KGB, um, created a fake monarchist organization in order to deceive the exiled white Russians uh, abroad, many of them in Paris, but also in China and in the United States. Um, and the goal of this organization was to uh, lure them to deceive them into com into complacency, into believing that the counter-revolutionary 
a movement inside Russia, inside the the young Soviet Soviet Union was in was thriving, and that that they really didn't understand what was going on inside Russia um, from from abroad, and uh, they went as far as luring prominent white Russians back into Russia, pretending they were on a on a trip. Uh, on, a, on an illegal trip, which arguably they were, and um, and deceiving them, you know, for weeks and all the way back home, to the point where they created this this resistance hero who was actually just working for the Cheka, uh, who would leave and go talk to the leadership of the White Russians uh, and persuade them not to do things that the, uh, the Soviets were afraid of, and instead to defer to him, and he'd he'd take care of it. Uh, uh, don't worry, old man. Uh, I'm young and in charge and in a place. I uh, and uh, you guys. Uh, Send money if you want to, but don't do anything else. Yeah, absolutely. The entire operation went on for years and um, became a, a, a veritable, you know, matryoshka doll of deception stacked into deception, to the point where even the final, um, essentially the final whistleblower of the operation, the the defe- defector Opperput is his name, um, who finally made it public and then it it stopped. It became unclear whether he was whether even he was a planted um, whistleblower, so to speak, a defector making that public, which is the fascinating part of this operation. So, for a researcher like me, for a scholar, that means how do you tell that story if uh, if it's if it's so full of lies and deception? And so, what I did as a as a as a way to to tackle um, this difficult this situation, how do you write about it? is I used two main sources. The CIA did a, did a long study on the trust, which was declassified actually not too long ago. And SVR, you know, KGB's uh, first chief directorate successor organization, also did a study on the trust in, in Russian, published in a six-volume book. So I compared the two sources and basically reported the overlap. Oh, that's very cool. I, uh, you, you, you researched this very Deeply, I was kind of surprised. Uh, um, uh, you um, you spent a lot of time uh, dealing with some of the East German uh, um, practitioners of disinformation. You spent a lot of time in the Bulgarian files. Do you read Bulgarian? Uh, no, but uh, so you know one of the one of the amazing things of writing a history book uh, of this kind in in twenty nineteen is that the uh, automated translation has really changed the way we can process foreign language material. Meaning, I can do a lot more in an automated way, and then only in the in the uh, in the confirmation and fact checking and quote checking phase, I turn to human translators. So I had a Bulgarian translator. There's a kind of nod uh, at the fact that the U.S. was engaged in disinformation. That's sort of like you you, you kind of imagine this uh, Dudley Do Right showing up at the end of World War II and suddenly discovering that they were locked in battle with uh, guys who had been uh, lying for a living uh, for um, uh, decades at that point. And they said, well, okay, I guess we have to go out and tell some lies too, see what we can do. I, I have to say the discussion of American disinformation, which is a lot shorter because it got cut short, um, I, does not leave me feeling that these guys were really fundamentally good at deception. It's important to keep in mind, though, so two, let me say two things. One, um, when I, after I first uh, covered the 2016 election interference and 
and pointed the. F- I was one of the first to clearly call out GRU literally one day after the first leak dropped because it was so clear um, what we're looking at. It was a Russian operation. Um, I got a lot of, oftentimes I got the question from critics who said, well, aren't we doing the same thing? Aren't we just doing the exact, aren't we just also disinforming them? We may not know about it. So I wanted to tackle that argument by looking at the history of American operations that could be described as disinformation. CIA never self-described their own operations as either disinformation or active measures. For them, it was political warfare. And uh, so I looked at the 50s, which are extremely well documented. There are thousands of pages of case files in the CIA archives about uh, CIA front groups in Berlin that were basically forgery factories. And that story has never been told before. For some reason, nobody touched these uh, files so far. So it's just an amazing story how CIA is working with, you know, former Nazis. Uh, Wehrmacht, uh, uh, a Wehrmacht officer was the uh, principal agent, Hans uh, Marbach, and uh, Karl-Heinz Marbach. And I, I think th- the story is important for another reason, the, looking at these files. And that is because we have the files for many Soviet operations, not for all of them. In some cases, we have the files as well, the memos. But for many, we don't. So looking at the full life cycle of an operation, from proposal stage to oper- you know, to implementation, to authorization, new uh, budget requests, authorizations throughout, assessment at the end, termination, uh, paperwork, the full life cycle is just extremely interesting because it gives us insight into learning experiences. So let me just give you one, which is just fascinating. CIA discovered in the mid-1950s that being partly exposed in the German press, you know, rumored to be a CIA front, being partly exposed is better than not being exposed at all because it reduces the risk of full exposure by the adversary. How so? Well, because the story uh, of, oh my God, this is a CIA front organization, is essentially losing some of its news value because it's already been out as a rumor. That, that's ah, so so you basically uh, uh, this this used to be uh, this was the Clinton White House was terrific at that they deny deny <laughs> deny and then say it was old news I uh, <laughs> and, and so uh, yes every time the story comes up people say uh, oh maybe it's true but it's been denied I don't know uh, but it kind of creeps into your head that it might be true and then when the actual disclosure occurs you kind of say well didn't i already know that uh, is that is that really what you're talking about here yeah yeah basically that is, that is it uh, as far as i think they don't spell it out in that amount of detail in that memo but seeing it in a memo in, in on a cia memo i found was just fascinating so i do want to spend some time because i think it, it, this will tell us something about future um, uh, disinformation operations in how you construct a disinformation operation, because it's quite clear that the guys, the Germans who did this, the Bulgarians, the Czechs, uh, and the KGB guys, they saw this as a discipline that you had to do it a particular way. And and if I if I I, I think I said when I uh, wrote to you about this, I said it's kind of a mix of extraordinary preparation and contingency planning, plus a lot of improvisation, uh, uh, because they're constantly having to adjust on the fly to how the story is playing out um, in the press. Yes, absolutely. It's fascinating. It's, obviously, the story of active measures is full of contradiction. It's 
exquisitely planned, as you say, but also improvised throughout the operation. Uh, you know, contradictions are the raw material of these operations. And that leads to one of the um, design features that, they all, that the best operations share. And that is what you need is operation, people on the ground to understand existing rumors, existing conspiracy theories that emerge organically, um, existing frictions and cracks, which is a Leninist term here, cracks within the adversary society that you can then exacerbate and drive a wedge into. So, for example, Stasi was so good at, uh, at disinformation because they were, like their main adversary, German. They spoke the same language, had the same jokes, the same you know, family ties sometimes. So they, they really knew their, their target. And uh, the same is true for the, uh, by the way, for these uh, CIA front groups. They were also German, run by German, German initiatives. Um, the true, this, the same was true for the trust, the you know Soviet on White Russian operation. Um, that is a fascinating feature. The closer you are to the target, the better are the operations. So the 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 stuff that uh, I mean the, the the things that they bragged about most were that kind of thing. They bragged about uh, setting up uh, uh, a uh, no confidence vote for Willy uh, uh, Brandt, uh, who was this pretty left-leaning uh, SPD <clears throat> prime minister who was had worn out his welcome and was going to lose. Uh, uh, and they managed to uh, persuade a right-wing legislator. Well, I don't persuade. Uh, they got a right-wing legislator or two to vote against the no-confidence uh, measure and Willy Brandt uh, uh, lived to, uh, to fight another day. Um, how did they persuade this guy? Yeah, so Stasi, uh, the Department 10, um, the disinformation unit, indeed uh, ran, um, influenced the vote of two conservative members of parliament. One was simply bribed because he was heavily uh, in debt. And so it was a relatively easy case to get him on board. Uh, that His name was Steiner. The other one was more interesting. Uh, his name was Leo Wagner. Um, the Stasi ran him under false flag, which I find just fascinating here. The Stasi never directly talked to him. So the, the, the case officer ran an intermediary uh, um, asset in order to talk to his actual um, spy, basically. Uh, and of course, in this case, influence agent, agent. But the intermediary was a journalist, a West German journalist. He, of course, knew he was dealing with Stasi. But he, uh, to his actual target, uh, the member of parliament, he represented himself as represent as. Uh, Speak is talk, speaking for American trade interests, and they kept it deliberately vague. They didn't say he was an American spy, just to sort of make uh, Wagner feel even better. And and Wagner, so Wagner never knew that he was in fact um, helping Stasi. He thought he was helping American trade interests to keep uh, East-West ties open. Uh, so fascinating. Situation. It there. is, I, and and it it shows up in these disinformation campaigns over and over again. And if I can bring it down to something a little more contemporary, it raises the question for me whether um, Edward Snowden might have been influenced in that way. This has been there was some speculation, which has never really quite. Uh, uh, caught on that he was working for uh, uh, the Russians or the Chinese, but there there could easily have been a circumstance in which somebody who was working for them was 
goading him on to what he did. Uh, uh, what's your assessment of uh, how Snowden relates to some of these disinformation uh, campaigns? Um, the, 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 so I, do, I didn't look at, this is nothing that I write about in the book, Snowden as a potential Russian asset. Um, and in fact... Um, That's true. Yeah. I, <laughs> you, you talk about it, all of the things that he did, but it, it, I, I will say this as uh, uh, on my own hook. Uh, I, he was an odd duck and somebody who had advertised his odd duckedness while he was working for the CIA in Geneva. And so it wouldn't have been hard for mm. uh, the Russians to figure out that he was somebody to to work on. But, you know, the uh, the effort to uh, to suggest that he was actually working for the Russians has never, to my mind, uh, mm. uh, uh, come to fruition. Uh, but I can't help wondering whether he was helped along in his uh, uh, efforts by people who yeah. uh, kind of one level, one level away were working with the Russians. Let me respond by analogy and say something about Philip A.G., um, you know, the famous CIA, former CIA officer. I hate to call him defector, but that is possibly a term that can be justified. You could, you could probably call him traitor, couldn't you? He, he, he disclosed the names of, of a bunch of uh, CIA agents uh, and, uh, and may have gotten uh, one or two of them shot or certainly shot at. Yeah. So he had a he, he volunteered his services to KGB in Mexico. KGB then turned him down and great, uh, later regretted that error. But then he went to the Cubans um, and they embraced him with open arms and you know, later on, he had a KGB codename, Pont. Uh, and I mentioned this a G case, a G case in this context because there's this fascinating uh, instance um, moment when KGB uh, wants to launch a disinformation, a forgery. They want to surface a forgery, a fake, uh, I think off the top of my head, a letter, a letter from, from Kissinger or document from Kissinger. And they send it to KGB, but uh, excuse me, they send it to Philip A.G., but not as KGB. They send it to him. And this is somebody who has a known relationship with KGB, open, not open, but direct. Um, and uh, they don't send it to him as a KGB document, of course, but they send it to him as a, a camouflaging it as a, as a leak from a State Department um, officer, official from Washington. Why? To give him the sense that he's doing the right thing, to give him the feeling that he's on the morally on the right side of history and not just a KGB influence agent here. So that is, I think, how you would run these operations, uh, these individuals competently. Uh, if I were, you know, put, if I'm putting myself into the shoes of a potentially Russian uh, officer giving information to age uh, to excuse me uh, Julian Assange. Of course, you don't want to advertise to him that you're representing an adversarial intelligence agency. Right. You, 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 he may guess it, but you want him to always have uh, plausible deniability in the dark night of his soul. Absolutely. I briefly interviewed the Stasi officer who ran uh, the Generals for Peace, which was a a, NATO, a group of NATO generals. Oh, that's a great story. Yeah. That is a great story. Yeah. 
So the background on this that's worth saying is probably the most sustained disinformation campaign was the effort to stop the U.S. from modernizing its uh, theater nuclear weapons uh, in Europe uh, uh, after the Russians had introduced their own intermediate uh, uh, missiles, nuclear missiles. Uh, And it was uh, a sustained and costly effort to essentially build, not quite from whole cloth, but to turn something that was just a European inclination into a mass movement that ended up, uh, they were so successful, I think they persuaded the president uh, uh, to uh, uh, that, that he was wrong and that the protesters were right, even though the protesters were largely funded and certainly driven by uh, Soviet intelligence uh, priorities. So part of that was uh, generals for peace, which were a bunch of NATO generals who uh, uh, started uh, saying, We're, we've got our own doubts about introducing these new nuclear weapons. Yeah, exactly. And so the KG, the generals for peace, um, over time, um, there was this moment when East German, uh, a group of East German documentary filmmakers had made, had made a, a movie about the generals for peace because they were so successful. And um, they were invited to a screening to East Berlin, a couple of them. Um, two Germans uh, ultimately went, two German generals, West German generals, obviously. And so I asked the officer who ran them whether they knew that they were, uh, you know, working for Stasi ultimately and funded by Stasi. Um, and he said something, you know, very powerful. He said they didn't want to know. <laughs> of course not. Yes. <laughs> so I, uh, one question on that. Uh, the general, there, there, there were generals from every NATO member, practically. Uh, uh, the, the, the general rank officer from the U.S. was Hyman Rickover, who is like a legend in the nuclear Navy. He, yeah. he, he created it and ran it with an iron fist, uh, uh, hung on way too long and finally was kicked out uh, and probably resented that. Uh, uh, but the idea that he might have even guessed that he was carrying water for the Soviets is really pretty shocking. Is there is there something that ties Rickover's knowledge uh, 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 of that uh, into this, or is that just uh, uh, all we have is that one statement from the uh, the agent? I can't answer the question. I didn't spend. Uh, this is, would be a separate project to really focus on individual generals and their and their knowledge of the operation. So in this case, I simply can't answer the question. Um, I th- would yeah. suspect but it would be a, difficult he, to find any. Yeah. There, there is definitely a story to be written there because he is such a controversial but basically revered figure in the uh, in the navy. That, uh, but, but if I, um, yeah, no, but if I may, you, you, I think this point is important. Active measures work best if they tap into existing, real existing emotions and movements. Yes. So there were obviously officers who were um, very skeptical and concerned about uh, nuclear force modernization in in Europe. The peace movement here in the United States, the nuclear freeze movement and the wider peace movement in in Europe in the uh, late 70s and early 80s was genuine. So there's this fascinating FBI a study that I got out through a FOIA on the peace movement in a, in a more declass in a more detailed version than had been public before, and they conclude that it's impossible to quantify it, impossible to to say precisely how 
by how much the peace movement was in, influenced by uh, KGB, by the Soviets. Yeah. So the dilemma is for me, for you, for you know anybody talking about this, writing about it, the the dilemma is that you run a double risk of becoming a useful idiot. You become a useful idiot if you yeah. understate their effects, and and the, in reality, it's stronger than you think. But you also become a useful idiot if you overstate an imagined effect. So let me that that that, that kind of takes me to what I think is the last thing we ought to talk about, which is the Russian disinformation campaign around the 2016 election. And I think of that when when we talk about that, there are really two elements to it. Uh, one was hacking and doxing uh, the Democrat candidate, uh, uh, and we we. we we're all familiar with all of the stuff that came out and, and how much, uh, how aggressive that campaign was uh, and how much damage it did, at least to uh, 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 some of the DNC officials camp uh, 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 careers. And I think generally to the sense that uh, it, it kept um, uh, Hillary Clinton's email server in the news. It was really a, it was the most damaging issue that uh, she faced. Uh, and then there was also all of this Facebook and other activity on the part of the Russians buying ads, the famous one where, you know, Satan is arm wrestling with Jesus say, and Satan says, if Clinton wins, I win. And Jesus says, not if I can help it. Um, and I, can you Give us an assessment of the relative success of the two arms of their disinformation campaign. Yeah, um, great question. The the uh, social media um, campaigning by mostly, not exclusively, but mostly the Internet Research Agency in St. Petersburg, the Troll Farm, I think has been vastly, vastly blown out of proportion here in the United States. This it was nowhere nearly as important and effective as really most Americans think today. So the ad that you um, that you just mentioned, the Jesus versus Satan arm wrestling ad, was viewed before the election by, uh, it gathered 71 impressions um, and received 14 clicks only for one day. It was up only for one day. That is nothing. Oh my God. That's, uh, 14 clicks is nothing. And 71 impressions, half of them were below the, uh, uh, the line on your page, so you didn't even see it. Exactly. So that is only one example. Uh, another one is when Twitter, the same applies to Facebook, when they, or similar thing applies to Facebook, when they took down the fake accounts in approximately August um, 2017, so nine months after the election, they, uh, they froze the follower count at that time. So in the data, when you download them, the follower count is that of August 2017, not that of, say, September or October 2016, when allegedly they had to influence the election. So I spent a lot of time looking up these profiles on the Internet Archive at that point in time and cleaning the data by removing everything that happened after the election. So it turned out that, the, the, that we systematically overstate their uh, reach and impact by a factor of around five, um, between three and five just on the pure merits there um, uh, and the pure metrics there. The the problem was partly caused by um, the social media companies because especially Facebook didn't want to be accused of lowballing the numbers, but it was also partly caused by media organizations 
who, because that ultimately Facebook and Google took away took away their revenue model, basically have an emotional issue with uh, tech companies and felt this is the you know God sent opportunity to blame them for the demise of American democracy. I'm slightly overstating. Yep. So last question then, if um, if you were predicting, uh, it, 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 it's obvious that uh, Putin is heir to all of what he would consider a proud history of disinformation, uh, and that the the kind of hall of mirrors, uh, uh, they'll do this, and then we'll 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 surprise them with that uh, kind of planning for this uh, uh, these operations is something that's that's odd, you know deeply attractive to him. What would you do in the next uh, six months to screw with the 2020 election? What are the Russians going to do? What's the most likely kind of disinformation? And if you want to say, how can we prepare, armor ourselves against it? Yeah, great question. So first, uh, first, I would be very conscious of the challenge that I'm facing, delivering against extremely high expectations basically impossible to achieve the amount of perceived success that you achieved in, in 2016. Um, so having said that, I would probably not focus on anything coronavirus related, probably do some low level social media campaigning around it just to you know essentially meet the demand. But, but it's not going to move the needle that much because there's so much organic um, fear and conspiracy theory already. The thing that I think is ripe for some uh, form of uh, exploitation is the uh, forthcoming Burisma report that we will see from Congress. Um, that, I think, just is asking for some form of disinformation campaign. And the other, uh, the other thing that I think we have to be careful about is uh, disinformation campaigns that are, if they have risk appetite that is very high, and I doubt that, but still, if they have very high risk appetite around election day, of course, that's crunch time. Um, you could easily deliver some raw material that in the heat of the moment will confirm, potentially confirm the president's uh, uh, claims that the election was illegitimate by claiming you you know, hacked some infrastructure or did something else. So I would be concerned about being able to counter uh, a very fast but potentially high impact operation on election night or immediately after. So I, I, you know, if I were if I were planning this, and maybe it's just that uh, I, I, I resonate to uh, Putin's frequency. I think I'd take a leaf from some of the books where they had the fake defectors. I'd find a Bernie bro. I, I'd have him join the Biden campaign. I'd have him forge or actually send messages designed to try to get help from the Chinese in uh, fabricating uh, or uh, disclosing uh, uh, information that would hurt the Trump campaign. And then I'd have him, I'd have it come out three weeks before the election. And then the three days before the election, I'd have him flee to China, uh, uh, announcing that he couldn't live with himself anymore uh, uh, for uh, uh, for what he did. He had to tell the American people what he'd done uh, and then just hide out. Uh, um, uh, you could you could make that uh, um, that whole thing um, work pretty well. And he would have actually worked for, for the campaign. You know, uh, <laughs> uh, another another thing that the study of this history uh, brings to light, uh, brought to light to me, it's just how bad the trade craft the trade craft was that we saw in 2016, both on the GRU side, but really especially on the IRA side. Um, so, you know, the fact that 
the Mueller uh, report, the special counsel's team chose to highlight the IRA through the first indictment and essentially talk them up um, as, a, as a major threat that is, um, I think, uh, has not received the amount of criticism that it deserves. Yeah, I, fair enough. And, and look, this is all of this is bureaucratically driven. Uh, the IRA had an interest in showing they were really effective. Uh, so I, uh, when people caught them and said these guys are really dangerous, uh, I, part of them said, yeah, let's not deny it too much. Uh, and then when the FBI catches them, when the Mueller team catches them, um, these are the guys they caught. Well, of course, they want them to be 10 foot tall. And the FBI is 11 feet all because they caught them. Uh, so everybody had an interest in sort of overselling the IRA. I mean, we know from the, the archives that active measures operators collect press, you know, they make press clippings and very carefully look at the data of how their operations are perceived by the adversary itself. So some of the reporting, and I'm afraid, including some of the reporting by the US government and the special counsel itself, was essentially a, a form of outsourced BDA or out for outsourced uh, damage assessment that that we were writing, you know, for the Russian intelligence community. Yeah, secondary uh, disinformation uh, uh, or follow-on. Yeah, uh, well, look, your your book has some great pieces about the interrelationship between uh, the press and the disinformation campaigns. It's really the press is the oxygen that makes them work. Uh, I'm not going to get into it. I want people to read this book. It's a, it's a lot of fun. If you have any interest in intelligence, any interest in what happened in 2016, to, to go back and see all of its roots uh, deep into the Cold War and before uh, uh, is fascinating. So Thomas Ridd, that was a, a fine book, uh, I, and uh, I, it's called Active Measures, which is what the uh, Soviets called uh, disinformation, The Secret History of Disinformation and Political wa uh, uh, Warfare. Um, it's been a real pleasure to have you on. Thank you so much for having me. All right. Thanks to uh, also to David Chris, Matthew Hyman, Nick Weaver for joining me. This has been episode 312 of the Cyber Law Podcast, brought to you by Steptoe and Johnson. Send us comments and suggestions for people who can appear on the show. Cyberlawpodcast at steptoe.com. Rate the show. Please do rate the show uh, and leave a review. Uh, come on, you're sitting there in your pajamas. You've got nothing better to do. Uh, and please join us again next time as we once again provide insights into the latest events in technology, security, privacy, and government.